0: All right. Uh, this morning we continue in our study of Philippians. We are in chapter 4. Uh, today I'm going to read all the way down to verse 13, but we're, not gonna, uh, we're only going to focus on the first uh, seven verses, okay? Let's go ahead and read our passage. All right. Beginning in verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that not at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with many anxieties and fears, many circumstances in our lives that weigh us down and threaten to steal our joy and our contentment and our peace. Some of us are concerned about money. Some of us are concerned about finding a wife or a husband or about getting married or finding a career or our jobs, our kids, our parents. I pray that this morning you would draw near to each of us no matter where we're at and that you would help us to find our joy in you. Help us to know the peace of God. Pray for those of us who aren't able to be here today because of illness or other circumstances. Continue to lift up Mary Ruth and her family to you. We pray that you would strengthen her as she ministers to her father and mother and grandmother and that you would spare their lives if it's your will. Pray that you'd be with Matt and Caleb as they go it alone and that you'd give them strength and faith, that you'd help them be an encouragement to Mary Ruth from afar as they're able. I pray for the Duns this morning as they deal with sickness, that you would heal them and protect them. We thank you for bringing back the Jones and the Parker families from sickness as well. pray for Chris as she approaches the birth of her baby, that you give her strength and faith and that you keep her little ones safe. We pray for all the little ones in their classes, that you would guard them and protect them, and that you teach them your ways this morning. Thank you for their teachers. Pray that you'd bless them and give them grace and patience and joy as they teach. And we pray that you'd be with us now as we turn to your word. Open our eyes to see and understand. Humble our hearts. Help us learn and grow this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a couple of things before we get started. Uh, we're going to wrap up our study of this ladder over the next three weeks. Um, when we're done we're going to study Ruth, which is something I'm getting really excited about. It'll be great just in time for February and Valentine's Day, a little bit of romance, a little bit of relationship stuff. So that'll be fun. Um, Now, as we finish up our study on Philippians, we're going to be circling back around to the theme of joy. And more than that, we're going to focus on peace and contentment. So that's basically the next three weeks over and over and over again as we come to the end. Um, It's all connected. Joy, peace, contentment, they're all connected. So much so that it could all be one sermon, which is why I wanted to read the passage as a whole this morning. Remember, this book is just a letter. It would have been read in one sitting anyway, right? It would have come, it would have been read aloud to the entire church. We're just listening in on other people's mail, okay? Now, as Paul closes the letter, he does circle around to those themes. They've been there the whole time. Just a couple weeks ago, we hit the first finally, my brothers, right? That was like halfway through the letter. Finally, my brothers. And then rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to say the same things over and over again. And this morning, what does he do? He says the same things over again, right? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. All right, the first time he did that, he got a little sidetracked because he wanted to address some threats to our joy and our peace and our unity, right? Enemies of our joy outsiders who teach false doctrine. He calls them dogs. Thanks, Gretchen. I knew you. I could depend on you. Dogs, enemies, evildoers, right? People who would ruin our joy and peace if we let them. And today, we're going to talk about the enemy within, anxiety, how God wants us to deal with anxiety. Next week, we'll get a little more proactive. It's one thing to deal with our anxieties to respond to them in a godly way. It's also important to shift our focus from those things, and it's even better to be proactive or preemptive about that, right? By focusing and meditating on what's best. That'll be next week. Whatever's pure, whatever's lovely. In our closing week, we'll look at our source of strength to endure whatever trials or circumstances we face in life. And the real context for one of the most famous and misapplied verses in Scripture. I can do all things through Him, strengthens me. But I wanted to read it all today because I want it all in our minds because it is all connected, okay? And one of the things that I want us to have in our heads and hearts this morning as we go through this week and next week and the following week is something that actually happens, uh, is said in verse 11. I have learned. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Contentment and joy and peace they're not really things that we think about learning. The things that we think we've got it or we don't, right? You have it, you don't. It's there or it's not. There's not much to be done. But that's a lie. That's not the truth. Contentment is something that we can learn and it's something that must be learned. Same for joy and for peace. Sure, they're gifts from the Lord. We'll see that too. But they're gifts that are connected with us learning the discipline of responding well to the things that come and being proactive in our pursuit of joy and peace, okay? There's a real sense in which joy and peace and contentment are a choice that we make, but they're a choice that we make as we go to war with our anxieties and our fears and as we prepare to face whatever the day may bring and as we learn to trust God and lean on the strength he provides us in the difficult circumstances that we do face. Does that make sense? Okay, okay. But before we get too far into that, we do have to do some housekeeping. We are going verse by verse. We want to deal with everything. So question, anybody here this morning named Yodia? No? It's such a pretty name. How about Syntyche? Nobody? Cool, we can just move right on past that, right? Just doesn't apply. It's not addressed to us. All right, here's a letter to the whole church. Okay, And we have in it this little bit where the Apostle Paul calls out two people by name, two women by name. There's obviously some kind of conflict between them, right? This would have been read to the whole church. Okay, Imagine you're in the church at Philippi, and you got this letter from the Apostle Paul, and it's being read, and suddenly, Sarah, Gretchen. <laughs> That's what it would have been like, right? needs to be addressed it needs to be addressed apparently publicly from the pulpit so look what do we learn from that ministry's not clean right it's not sterile neither is the pulpit there's a problem pastor addresses it as it fits the situation just like you do at home around the dinner table with your kids right that said he's pretty he's pretty gentle about it right he entreats them he calls them out But he entreats, he could command them, he could be very stern here. He says, I entreat you. He's pleading with them, right? And he commends them too. So he softens it. They've labored side by side with him in the gospel. He calls them fellow workers. He says their names are in the book of life. So I called you out in my letter. It's gonna be remembered by everybody in scripture, but what's important here is your names are in the book of life, right? That's the only book that matters. So it ends up being pretty sweet. So not what we'd want to be remembered for, right? Sarah and Gretchen being called out in the, you just happen to be right in my gaze. <laughs> being called out in scripture forever for everybody to see as an example of two people that are fighting and need to be, have their conflict resolved. But it could be worse, And we'll talk about uh, that more some in our last sermon on Philippians because there's more housekeeping there too at the end. But I want us all to move away in our thinking from the big box, sterile sense of propriety we have about what the church is and what church should be like, okay? How we deal with sin, how we deal with conflict, or how we don't in most churches. It's sin. It's addressed publicly and not privately. He didn't go to them privately and try to deal with it, so far as we know, right? He just wrote a letter. Jesus does command us to do that, and there's a context for it, but here it's public, which probably means it's a pretty public sin. Often we see in Scripture things that are public are dealt with publicly because they affect everybody, more than just the two people that it's between. It's also personal, and it's not general. Y'all ever heard somebody say, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin, not yours? Ever heard somebody say that? Maybe you've said it. Yes. Often he does it by a brother, a sister, pastor, actually coming and being direct and personal about it in our lives. He works through people. So here we have that as an example for us in scripture. We have plenty of other examples of that sort of thing too. So speaking of things that need to be addressed publicly, Peter, just kidding. (laughs) Did you feel a little? (laughs) But y'all do need to fill out your membership application thingies. Okay, so do that. They're simple, it's easy. Um, Then have an interview, sit down and tell me and Ben why you love Jesus and a membership. Okay? All right. No stone unturned. I wanted us to deal with that before we get into what we're really going to be talking about this morning. So question. What makes you anxious or afraid? What makes you anxious? What makes you afraid? What makes you worried? Besides getting called out in sermons for not paying attention when your dad's looking at you during this, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what makes you anxious or afraid? What gets under your skin? What makes it hard? Money? Uh, We got somebody back there that's got an answer, yeah? (laughs) Being late, (laughs) being late, get uptight about being late. You like to be punctual, makes you anxious. Money, inflation, bills, debt, relationships with your parents, with your kids, with your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your lack thereof. Performance and success in any context, your job, school, the ball field. There's a lot of things to be anxious about, right? Politics, your health, a lot of things to be anxious about. Here's another way to ask the question. What are you most intent on trying to control in your life? Where is your grasp the tightest? Where are you trying to control things? tell you a lot about what you're actually afraid of, what you're anxious about. You know, a budget is a good thing. It's a useful tool. It can be a good servant. In the hands of someone ruled by anxiety over finances, can become a tyrannical slave master, right? Seeking to exercise control over every single thing. How about your kids? Parents, it's easy to forget that your job is to raise your children into mature men and women, right? It's easy to think your job is simply trying to control behavior. Now, ultimately kids can't be controlled, can they? But we know what's best. If we could just get them to do what we know 100% of the time, then it would be great. (laughs) Why are they dumb. Why don't they do what I want them to do? Duh! (laughs) Discipline is a good tool, right parents? It's a good tool. It creates boundaries, it provides safety and security, but as a tool of control instead of an instrument of growth, it becomes destructive, doesn't it? It stops being disciplined. I'm not just talking about physical discipline. Some of the most destructive Discipline, used as a tool of control, is just emotional manipulation, right? It's about control. It reveals our anxieties and our fears. Our mistrust of God. Our mistrust of the tools that he's given us. This is one of my favorite themes because it's so pertinent to me. There's an inverse relationship between your emotional self-control your ability to deal with your fears and your anxieties and your angry response to circumstances outside of your control, and your need to exercise total control over everything and everyone else around you. Does that make sense? So I need to say it again. There's an inverse relationship between your emotional self-control and your need to control everyone and everything around you. If I refuse to control my emotions and deal with them in a godly way, I will try to control everyone and everything around me. And the better... And more focused I am at dealing with myself, the easier it is to be free. So how do we deal with our emotions? How do we deal with our fear and our anxiety? Generally speaking, we have two or three options for how we deal with our emotions on our own. With our anxieties, with our fears, with our insecurities. Option one, we can bottle them up and try to control them. Like stoics, like robots. Right? Right? Nothing shall touch my heart. I will turn it into stone. Does that work? We're not robots. The lid eventually blows off the top. You could try to do that. You could try to keep everything around you manageable because you're a person with self-control, so you think. And then God will give you pressure and you'll explode. Your identity as a self-controlled person will go out of the window. It'll become a personal crisis. You thought you had it together. And now God's given you a toddler you can't control. Must be the toddler's fault. Fault. Bottle up, explode. Bottle up, explode. In our marriage, we never fight. And now we're yelling about the socks on the floor. Bottle up, explode. Option two, you can just let your emotions run free and wild and let them control you and be ruled by your feelings here and there and let them dominate you and have them dominate every interaction you have with people, and try to make everybody and everything just sort of revolve around you. Your whole life is ordered around you getting what you want and what you need from absolutely everybody at every point in time. Affirmation here, security there, validation, emotional support. You're not just an emotional basket case, you're also an an emotional leech. You have to control your children. You have to control your husband, your wife, their opinion of you, your situation at work. You have to be your own boss because you can't work for anybody. You have to do you all the time. The world has to revolve around you all the time and anytime it doesn't, it's chaos. there's option three. You can medicate it all away. Alcohol is strong enough for most people. I don't use alcohol to self-medicate. I just use it to make things better and make the pain go away. And if alcohol is not strong enough, there are drugs and there are prescriptions you can get doctors to fill for you. And none of those methods are mutually exclusive, right? They all sort of like fit together. They work hand in hand. But we all on our own tend in one direction or another, right? Which are you? What does God say? God says contentment, joy, and peace are things that we can have, things we can learn no matter what our situation is. Contentment is what you have when your peace and happiness does not depend on everything else around you because you've dealt with your heart before God. It's not being totally indifferent to our circumstances. We're not Stoics, we're not Buddhists. We feel what happens to us, sometimes very deeply. Difficult things are happening to us all the time. When the Bible commands us to be content, The Bible is not commanding us to live in denial about what's going on around us or inside of us. It's not commanding us to turn our hearts into stone and to feel nothing. Our joy and contentment as Christians is not manufactured. It's a joy that can look at all of the sorrows of this world and say, and yet I will rejoice. Contentment's hard, but we can learn it. So how do we learn it? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We start with the art of rejoicing always. it's a command. Over and over in this letter and in all of Scripture, we're commanded to rejoice. In fact, we're commanded to rejoice so many times that our eyes tend to sort of glaze over and we just ignore the command. We don't even know how where to start. He's telling us to rejoice again. Okay, move along. But if it's command... Something that can and ought and must be obeyed, right? Oh, we're serious Christians. Commands like that are for fake, phony Christians. Probably they quote it all the time at Joel Osteen's church. Forget the fact that the command was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Who's the command for? Why do you think the command is there? Why is anything commanded in Scripture? Here's a question. Do you command happy people to rejoice? Why not? Because they're happy. You don't need to. So, what does it say if God commands us to rejoice? Well, what would you say? <laughs> We're sad. It's hard, right? Uh, yesterday, I was at baseball practice and a birthday party. Anybody have to tell any of those kids to be happy? Actually, yes. At baseball practice, there are always a couple of kids that are too down on themselves, right? They make a mistake. They got to be picked up. They have to be commanded to smile and have fun. They have to be reminded that they're doing something they love. It's baseball. It's fun. You love it. If it's not fun, it's obviously not baseball because baseball is fun. Otherwise, what are we, it's a game. What are we here for? Right? At the birthday party, I didn't see anybody that needed to be commanded to have fun, though, to smile. You don't command happy people to rejoice. You command people who are tempted to be sad and miserable and afflicted. Groaning, complaining people, right? People who have cause to be upset or sad or anxious or whiny, those are the people that you command to rejoice. So are you qualified to receive this command? Yeah, me too. Suffering and distress were real concerns for the church at Philippi. They were in the midst of persecution, real persecution. That's why they needed to be encouraged to bear it well. That's why they needed to be taught to bear it with joy. They were tempted to groan. Our position here in America is changing fast, right? We all feel it. We feel the ground moving under our feet. The world around us is changing. We're beginning to feel the same kinds of pressures that the church felt in Philippi. They needed to be told to rejoice, they needed to be told to stop lying about the gospel, because the gospel is good news, happy news. You're saved from the wrath of God, your sins are forgiven. What do you have to be sad about? A joyless Christian should be an oxymoron, right? If you're not joyful, is it even Christianity? And yet here we are. We're weak. We're sinners. We're human. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul was too. He was a man. He was a sinner. He had suffered much. He learned contentment. If this passage... Rejoice, again I say rejoice, was written by Joel Osteen. We could write it off, right? Hop in your private jet and go fly away to your orthodontist appointment and (laughs) leave us alone. But the Apostle Paul is not Joel Osteen, right? He's not writing from his private jet. Where's he writing from? He's writing from prison. That's right. He's writing from prison. He's writing from prison under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so we have to take them seriously. It's one thing to say we believe these things. It's another thing altogether to hold fast to them, to stand on them in the midst of trial, in the midst of fire. It's another thing to know the peace of God when our whole life has been turned upside down. So what is your faith? Is it real? The world will know, and so will you, when things get tough. So rejoice, get in the habit. It's a command, and God's commands aren't burdensome, Uh, That sounds hard. How do I do that? Well, that's why we're going to spend three weeks talking about it, right? And one of the big keys to doing that is what we're actually going to be focusing on next week. Okay. Focusing on, reflecting on, meditating on things that are praiseworthy, that bring joy, real joy. But that's next week, and we have more to get into. Okay. So let's keep working. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Bad translation. Bad translation. In all of Scripture, that word is never ever translated as reasonableness. I don't think it's translated as reasonableness anywhere, ever. It's translated as gentleness, gentle spirit, graciousness. <coughs> Problem, with it, uh, of course, is when we read the word reasonableness, what do we think of? We think of somebody who would cop a posture that nobody in, wouldn't fit any godly person we see in Scripture, right? right? Not the Apostle Paul, not Jesus, not John the Baptist, not the other apostles and prophets. A reasonable man by our standards, the way we think of it, would never write what the Apostle Paul wrote just a few verses earlier, calling people dogs, making puns on their, you know, name for themselves. He wouldn't do that, right? A reasonable man by our standards would never make a whip and drive people out of a temple, never do anything to get his head cut off like John the Baptist or Paul reasonableness is a modern virtue. It's not a biblical one, and that's not the word here. If you spend your life avoiding the appearance of being unreasonable, you'll spend your life doing nothing of use to the people of God. So how are we to understand the command to let your gentleness or your gentle spirit? Well, I think it's uh, connected to what was said back in chapter one. He told the church not to be frightened in anything. When they were persecuted. Our response to suffering. To persecution is to fear. And to tremble and to cower. The flip side of the coin. Is to be angry and bitter. And vengeful. To try to get yours. And Paul says we're to take all our trials. As from God. In a gracious gentle sort of way. Level headed. With equanimity. Not with indifference. Not passively. But with a gentle and gracious spirit. Okay. Bad things happen. The gentle spirit takes it in stride. How do we do that? We remember that the Lord is at hand. He's near to us. He is present and near to us now by his Holy Spirit to comfort us in the midst of our trials and sufferings. He's near to those who suffer and call on him. It's strengthening, right? The inability to stand firm with gentleness and love is a product of refusing to see that the Lord is near. The fear of God will make us take the stands that we must take. God's near to us. He loves us. He cares for us. And his coming is near too when he makes all things right. Second Thessalonians 1 says this, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming and he's coming to avenge the wrongs that have been done to his people and to comfort them with everlasting comfort. He's coming to make all things right. The greatest enemy of patience and contentment and joy and peace is forgetting that. We have a father in heaven who loves us, who cares for us, who is near to us, who gives us everything that we need, and who avenges the wrongs done to us. We forget that God sees, and when we do, that's when we grab and grasp and try to get what's ours. It's when we have to control everything and everyone around us, right? God is in control, and he's for us. He is for his people. The inability to trust that is the root of our anxieties and our fears. And here's the reality about our circumstances. Our circumstances always change, don't they? They always change. They're never the same. Our lives are always moving. Things are always happening. But God, he never changes. He never changes. He's sovereign over all our circumstances. He's in control, so we don't have to be. He's a good father who loves us and cares for us. He orchestrates everything in our lives for the good of those who love him and for his own glory, always, without exception. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. This is the way we have to see things because if we think we're going to finally get control of our fears by controlling our circumstances, guess what? It's not going to happen. You can't do it. You're not big enough and you're not strong enough. And the problem isn't actually out there, it's in here. I had a friend reach out to me not too long ago uh, to talk about a young man in his church who was leaving the faith and leaving his wife and his five kids. He was running. He asked me what he should say to him. I said a lot of things, but ultimately what I said boiled down to this. You should ask him where he thinks he can go to get away from himself. Where does he think he can go to get away from himself? Because the problem is not his wife and his kids. The problem is him. It's not his responsibilities weighing him down. I mean, sure, he may have jumped into marriage early and presumptuously and Impulsively he may have started having kids, he may have gotten overwhelmed, he may have realized, man this is work and it's hard and it's responsibility and I can't ha-. We've all had that feeling, right? Of that wow, this pressure and I want to just escape. Escape what? The fact that you're in bondage to your own impulses? That you have no self-control? That's not going to change. Not by running. The problem isn't out there. It's not with your wife, it's not with your husband, it's not with your kids. It's with you. You're the problem. God is good. God is sovereign. God is in control, not us. And that makes every circumstance and situation in our lives, everything, including the pressures we feel, a manifestation of God's love and care for us. Places where we most need to trust Him and where we most need to grow. Every circumstance and situation in our lives, even and especially the most painful ones, are God's gift to us our good. So, in light of that reality, do not be anxious about anything. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be nervous. Don't be troubled or worried about your circumstances. God is sovereign over all of them. He's coming soon. Your money, your schoolwork, your job, your future, the fact that you're still single, your Pile of debt, spiritual state of your children. Be anxious for nothing. Well, but there's a fine line about uh, between being anxious for or being an anxious person and being a responsible person, right? Yeah, but the difference between being an anxious person and a responsible person is a responsible person goes to bed at night, lays their head on their pillow and remembers that God is in control and that he is good and that he loves you and you can sleep and trust him. You've done your best today with a good conscience and you can trust God. An anxious person can't do that. So the apostle Paul continues, doesn't stop with, don't be anxious. Doesn't leave us there. There's practical help in the passage. A real peace, a peace that transcends our understanding, a peace that's supernatural. That's what we need. Something real, something true, something better than don't think about it. Stop. Stop it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Make your requests known to God. We feel our needs. There are many. We have many requests. Don't deny them, take them to God. We have somewhere to take them. We have a heavenly father that cares for us, that knows our needs before we ask, who loves us. The reason the Christian can be free of anxiety is we have a place to turn with our anxieties. That's real. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. This is why the Psalms are so important because they teach us over and over again how to bring our hearts before God, no matter their condition. If we would read and pray the Psalms, We'd find example after example after example of the psalmist bringing their hearts wherever they're at, afraid, scared, angry, bringing their hearts before God. Every bit of emotional baggage they have, not bottling it up, not letting it run wild, not medicating it away, pouring it out before the one who's in control, who sees, who knows, and who loves and cares for you. The Holy Spirit teaches us to make our requests known to God in the midst of suffering and anxiety. We just come to God. Often in the midst of temptation and trial, we cry out to God, but we don't cry out humbly though, right? We cry out with demands about our rights and our grudges and our bitterness or with unbelief, offering prayers to fate or to the ceiling. But Paul tells them to come a different way with thankfulness, with gratitude. Gratitude in the midst of our suffering. Why? Because gratitude is the enemy of discontentment and humility is the enemy of ingratitude. We humble ourselves before God. We realize he doesn't owe us anything. We don't deserve anything except wrath. Our eyes are taken off all that we don't have, all that we think we need They're put on God who has provided for us richly in Christ. That's what happens when we come to God's presence, and that's how our anxiety is cut at the root. We remember God's forgiven our sins. He's given us everything we need and that helps us to be bold about making our requests known because He's already given us everything in Christ. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Paul says, in everything, in everything, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's nothing too small to bring to God. Nothing. There's no bit of anxiety or worry that you're facing that He's above speaking to. In fact, failure to bring everything to God, even the smallest thing to God, is not Christian. It's atheistic. God cares about everything. He cares about the car keys. He loves you. Our God is a Father who cares, who sees, who hears, and who loves you. So bring your cares to Him. Bring your requests to Him. And when we make our requests known to God, He will do something. He will give us supernatural peace that overcomes our anxiety, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. It's not a peace that can be described or explained. It surpasses all understanding. How can we talk about it? But it's real. And it's yours in Christ. So we rejoice. We face whatever comes with gentleness of spirit, with humility and equanimity, right? We remember that God is near that he loves us, cares for us, that he makes all things right. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then we pray with gratitude. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for loving us and for caring for us and for drawing near to us. Thank you above all for sending Jesus while we were your enemies. There's no greater proof of your love for us than that, that you sent your only son to die for us, to make us part of your family. Help us to trust you, to trust in your love toward us and your kindness to us. Help us to humble our hearts before you and to obey you by not being anxious, but by casting our anxious cares on you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.